Hello and welcome to the Building Educator Capacity Podcast, where we strive to improve student learning by expanding the capacity of our diverse school districts. I'm Mitchell Lilly, the Executive Director of Communications at CISA2, joined by Phil Anderson, our Communications Coordinator. I want to start today's podcast off with a question for you, Phil. Do you remember learning how to read? Hmm. Well, in terms of growing up as a child learning English, I would say not for the most part. Like I remember reading a specific thing like a, a stop sign and saying stop and that kind of stuff. But I wouldn't say I necessarily remember the process of learning how to read. What about you, Mitchell? Yeah, you know, it's a little fuzzy for me too. I remember, you know, in kindergarten or maybe even earlier than that, it was the flashcards with the A's and the B's and the C's and there's pictures on the cards and C is for cat and you make the K noise and then putting sounds together and forming words. And, you know, uh, I know how to read now, so something ended up working, but don't have much of memory of the actual process of learning to read. Um, again, it just happens when you're so young. But uh, here in Wisconsin, teaching literacy has come to the forefront of our minds due to recent legislation. For our episode today, CC2 Literacy Consultant Chris Statz talks with Lindsay Kameni, author of the book Seven Mighty Moves. Seven Mighty Moves is about teaching reading and that it's more than just memorizing patterns. We'll delve into the topic of balanced literacy practices versus structured literacy practices for helping all students to become better readers. Lindsay Kemeny is a seasoned elementary school teacher who is currently teaching first grade. After her son was diagnosed with dyslexia and depression, she began her deep dive into effective literacy instruction. She is a Siri certified structured literacy classroom teacher and holds a master's degree in curriculum and instruction. In addition to being a classroom teacher, Lindsay has served as a teacher mentor and reading interventionalist. She enjoys presenting locally and nationally and co-hosting the Literacy Talks podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today. I'm Chris Statz, a literacy consultant at CISA2, and we're going to be starting a book study of Lindsay Kemeny's book, Seven Mighty Moves, soon. So I've invited Lindsay to talk with us about her story, how she came to write a book, and her journey with the science of reading. So for those of you who are new to learning about the book and the author, Lindsay Kemeny, let's get to know more about her. Hi, Lindsay. Tell us a bit about yourself and your journey in education to where you are now. What inspired you to get into education? Well, thank you. I'm so excited to be here. So really, it's an honor. And I'm so I'm honored you guys are doing a book study. So thank you so much. Um, I've always loved teaching. Um, I remember, you know, coming home from school when I was a little girl and like setting up my stuffed animals and then reteaching the lesson to them. But I never seriously considered becoming a teacher until about my freshman year in college. And um, up until this point, I had been a really serious ballet dancer. So that's kind of different. But I was burned out, but I didn't know what to major in. And, you know, as part of this, the ballet company we're with, we would perform and do assemblies a lot of times in schools. And so it was being in that elementary school setting that I started to think, Hmm, you know, I, I like this. Okay, maybe I'll become a teacher. And so uh, that's what I did. Um, and I taught, you know, about for about five years, I taught second grade first, and then I took a break, like a 12 year break from teaching where I was, I wanted to be able to stay home with my children. I have four children, 
um, until, and then when my youngest was about in preschool, I returned to the classroom and I've taught kindergarten, second grade, first grade, and intervention for, you know, grades K to six. Wow. That's so interesting. I have heard you talk so many times and I've never heard the part about the ballet dancing. So that's really, (laughs) I love that. And actually I did the same thing. I took a break for about eight years and was home with my kids. So I wouldn't trade it for anything. It was a really, really wonderful time. So I actually heard about you first from your blog post, Sink or Swim, the appearance of reading. Can you tell us about that? And then what prompted your post as well as the impact afterward? Yeah. Okay. I love that. That's how you first heard of me. Um, Yes. The sink or swim post. So I was heavily trained in balanced literacy. And so, so I would use these strategies based on the three queuing system. I would say, you know, look at the picture. Does it give you a clue when a student came to a word they didn't know or be like Skippy the frog, skip over the word, read the rest of the sentence and then figure out what the word is. And I had never thought, you know, I didn't think twice about those initially. When I was teaching second grade, I didn't really think about it. But it was when I was teaching kindergarten that this really hit me because in kindergarten, you're spending all this time teaching the letter names and sounds, right? And then I pull the students back to my small group table and I wanted them to practice those sound spelling correspondences that I had taught them. But I had those predictable, repetitive books that basically the students had to memorize the pattern and look at the picture to read the words. So they were, you know, it's like we cleaned up the garage, we cleaned up the kitchen, we cleaned up the bedroom. And I found myself really thinking about those strategies because I I was I had to tell them, oh, wait, stop. You can't sound this one out. Look at the picture. Does it give you a clue? The reason why they couldn't sound it out was because it had, you know, these phonics concepts within the word that I hadn't taught yet, like maybe a digraph or a vowel team, and I hadn't taught those. And so I became really frustrated. And then I realized because it looks like they were reading, but I'm like, they're really not. They're not practicing those sound spelling correspondences. They're memorizing this pattern. They don't even have to look at the book because they've just memorized it and can say it. And then I was sitting in my kids' swimming lessons, my older two boys and everyone in the swimming class, they're like swimming back and forth between the width of the pool, um, practicing their strokes. And my two little boys were literally walking back and forth and between of the width of the pool. And then they had their arms and they're doing their little arm strokes. And they're like, hey, mom, we're swimming. Look at us, you know? And I'm like, oh my gosh we need private lessons. <laughs> my first thought. But then I'm thinking about that. And I'm, and I'm just like, that is kind of what's happening here with, you know, my kindergartners as they're reading these books, they're going through the motions. It's the appearance of reading. So they're sitting there doing the strokes. But if you look under the water, they're just walking, they're not actually swimming. And so that was just like the perfect analogy for me to really understand what was happening. And, uh, and so that, that is one of the first posts, you know, I had written for my blog and it did, it got a lot of attention. A lot of people shared it because I think that analogy just really sticks. Yeah, definitely. Well, and I think about, you know, with the swimming analogy, 
it is true when you're watching those little ones read those books, it feels smooth and like they're reading and then listening to them decode can be so painful. It's like, you almost feel like you're helping them when you give them something where they have the predictable text. So I think that's one of the things that's been so difficult about, you know, making that transition. Yeah, Um, absolutely. It's, It's just like, so it's so easy, especially as a kindergarten teacher to give them that predictable text and hear them. And you're like, oh yes, this is good. This is easy. This is great. Right. But it's that productive struggle that they need. They need to be sounding out those words. And, you know, it's, I know you have to be patient because you hear them sound out map on one page and then again on the next page and then again right. on the next page. <laughs> but that's what they need to do. Right. right. And it's, it's, you go slow to go fast because it'll yeah. help them in the long run. Oh, definitely. So one of the things that it's it's been talked a lot about in our state, because I had shared with you that there was some legislation that was passed recently. And so there's been a lot of talk about ter- the terms balanced literacy and structured literacy. So can you tell us a little bit about that? Because I know that we have a lot of, of educators in our state in particular who are kind of dealing with that transition. Um, and just maybe talk a little bit about why you think that's challenging and then maybe some of the misunderstandings or confusion by by those terms. Okay, yeah. So um, like I said, I was heavily trained in balance literacy. And I used to I used to say, this is the best way to teach reading. And I was always say that. And teaching reading was always my favorite thing. Then really what happened the same year is like I said, it was my first year teaching kindergarten. And as as I said, I was starting to get a little uneasy because I was like, oh, these, these prompts that I'm using, this is giving them the wrong idea of what reading was that same year, my own son, um, he had been really struggling to learn to read. And this is my third son. So my, my first two learned to read so easily and effortlessly, it seemed like, and this little guy, I'm doing all the same things. And he was struggling to learn, to read, to learn his letters. And it was almost embarrassing because I'm like, I'm a teacher and and I can't help him. And I'm doing all the things I had been taught in my balanced literacy training. And it's not working. It's not working for him. And Finally, the end of his second grade year, we did some outside testing done and found out that he has dyslexia. And that really started me on my journey because I had to find out what do students with dyslexia need to learn to read? Well, that brought me to what does everyone need to learn to read? What happens in the brain when you learn to read? And it's just this misconception that students with dyslexia need something completely different because structured literacy is so good for them, but it's also great for everyone else. And I was, I became really angry at the things I was being taught that the things I was learning because they weren't aligned with what I had been taught. And some of the things I had been taught, either there was no research to back it up or literally had been debunked by research. And that was just so hard for me. And so I think sometimes that is why it's it's hard for some teachers uh, maybe to make this transition because like before I just thought well there's always going to be students that struggle or oh that students their parents just don't work with them enough well guess what I saw firsthand that I was working with my son you know more than my older two kids and he was still struggling to learn to read I needed the right tools to help him and so it was just amazing for me to see the difference 
in not only as I started applying what I was learning with my son, but in my normal general education classroom, because everyone, I, now I knew how to help everyone in the class. And so I think that's one reason why it's hard. Or the other thing is that Yes, balanced literacy works for some kids. And there's this great graphic. It's the ladder of reading. And mm -hmm. it's like, you know, about 40% of our students are going to learn to read no matter what we do. But if we make the shift and now like, why not teach in a way that hits everyone in the classroom and not just, you know, the top 40% that will learn to read no matter what. And so that was so exciting to me to say, okay, these kids in my class are struggling. I have so much clarity now. I'm going to go, I can dive deep into what exactly they need. Um, I can have a really strong tier one instruction and I can meet the needs of all my students. I don't know. It's just really exciting. And for me, I saw because my son has depression as well. And his depression, he was diagnosed the same time of, as his dyslexia. And it all centers around his struggles learning to read. And, and that's the other thing that changed me because he was so young, but he was struggling with suicidal thoughts. You know, if you hear your eight-year-old child say that he wishes he were dead, that just, that changes you. And it changes me. And I just realized like the ability to read is so tightly connected to our self-esteem. And I did so many things to help my son's depression, but what I found what helped him the most was the ability to read because as, as his reading improved, his self-esteem improved. And it's just been neat to see that process repeat really with other students in my class where I see, you know, they are coming in. I had a second grader coming in reading three words correct in a minute she was very behind. She was closed off. She was quiet. She was sad. And to see her blossom throughout the year as her reading improved. And she finished the year second grade on grade level reading. I can't remember now. It's like 80 words correct per minute. Maybe it's more. It's like 87. And just the difference. And so I just think the gift of literacy is just one of the greatest gifts we can give these kids. So sometimes I think that challenge you were saying, you know, that what's the challenge between shifting from balanced literacy to structured literacy. Sometimes it's just not realizing because if you're like me, I'm like balanced literacy, that's the best way to teach reading, but I hadn't tried anything else. And once I kind of switched and, and saw, no, now I have more clarity. Now look, I can reach all the learners. Sometimes that's, that's one of the big steps. And it's also hard to realize, like I had guilt when I was like, wait, the three queuing system has been debunked and I was teaching that. And that's, you know, it's creating, you know, habits that are hard to break. And I was doing something wrong. And that's really hard. It's really hard to take a hard look at your teaching to see what's effective and what's not. So that's definitely a challenge. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think I, I always keep thinking that we can all ground ourselves. We all want students to be readers and I think we all understand how important it is. It's just finding ways to, like you said, it is difficult to face that you have been doing things that sometimes were even, you know, they weren't supporting students as readers at all. They were actually strategies that poor readers use. So um, I think I think that's a really, really good point. I'm glad that you brought up about dyslexia too and about how 
you know, those strategies are really a lot of the same. I love that ladder of reading that you mentioned. That's Nancy Young's ladder of reading. I think that's a really great graphic to just think about how all students benefit from structured literacy. Great. Well, thanks for sharing that about your son too. I can't imagine how painful that that would be. And so I'm so glad that he's doing better and, but I'm sure that was a lot of work. And so I'm really glad that you shared that. So thank you. So um, I think that I, I just love your book so much. I think it's really accessible to anyone who, no matter where they are on their journey, because I, I attend a lot of webinars and there's always a wide range of people who are kind of like just starting the process or who are, have been, you know, looking into things for a while. So can you just tell us a little bit about like what prompted you to write the book? And then what it's like when you first wrote it, what were your hopes for who, who was your audience and what were you thinking, um, you know, what happened with it? Yeah, well, it kind of goes back to why I started my blog, because I just became so passionate. Like I said, I was seeing the difference in my son and my students, and I was angry myself that I hadn't learned these things. So I just was like, I want to share what I'm learning as I'm learning it, because I think every teacher deserves to know this stuff and every student deserves a teacher who knows this stuff. And so I started that blog with that in mind. And then it was the editorial director of Scholastic reached out to me and had asked, you know, several people at Scholastic had read my blog. That's how they knew about me. So they reached out to me to invite me to, um, write a book proposal. They were wondering, are you interested in a book? And we met with them and I had to write a book proposal. And then I just thinking about, you know, I want to help so many teachers out there because I see also a lot of questions for even those that are learning about this research and they're learning about structured literacy. There's a lot of questions about how to apply it. And so that was just another thing that I really wanted to share was, okay, this is what I'm doing in my classroom. These are my favorite ways to apply this stuff in the classroom. And so that was really kind of my, my goal. I wanted uh, with the book, I want to break down research in an easy to understand way. And I want to let uh, teachers know out there how I'm applying it and what I like to do. So here's not like 500 strategies for you. No, I've already like weeded through. Here are the things that are working in my classroom. Yeah. And I love, I mean, the way that you structured it too, with the moves, you can almost think about, okay, I'm going to try this move first and then maybe I'll move into the next one. And so it just feels like um, an easy way to kind of ease into things. Mm -hmm. um, so I would love to touch on all the, the seven moves, but I thought we'd just pull out a couple that I think for me, at least it just really spoke to me. Um, move two about teaching phonics explicitly and systematically. I think if you had asked me that 10 years ago, I would have thought I was doing that. But now that I know more, I, I understand that I definitely was not. So can you talk a little bit about like misunderstandings with that and um, why you think that, I mean, obviously it's a really important part of teaching reading, but just discuss that move a little bit. Sure. Yeah. And I, I like felt the same as you, where if someone had said, that I wasn't teaching phonics, I would have been really offended by that because I thought I was teaching phonics back then. And yes, I was facilitating some great activities. We were doing kind of these making words, word chains kind of thing, but I didn't know what good phonics instruction looked like. 
And I was doing these activities, but there really wasn't a lot of instruction to go with it. And one of the first things I learned was I need to follow a phonics scope and sequence um, that goes from, you know, less complex skills to more complex skills that goes from high frequency spellings to low frequency spellings so that the students aren't left with this like Swiss cheese type effect um, in their reading knowledge. So I, so before, for example, I would just teach something when it came up in a book. So maybe um, they struggled with, with a certain Val team or something, or maybe it was like IGH. Oh, that just happened to be in the book. And now I'm going to teach a lesson on that because they struggled with that. No. So explicit systematic instru instruction is like I said, following that scope and sequence. And then sometimes I think people think it means the teacher's just up there lecturing, like really boring, um, all teacher, you know, it's, it's mostly the teacher, um, talking and doing things, which is not what it is. It's super interactive. I say something, they say something. I do something, they do something. Students are so engaged in my phonics lessons because they have opportunities to respond constantly throughout, whether that's a choral response or writing something, pointing to the word, um, whatever. There are so many opportunities to respond. And the students really love the phonics lessons. I think we have a quick pace and they're doing a lot of things. They feel successful. I have these routines that they follow, which allows them to really focus on the concept being taught instead of like the routines because they're so, they know them so well. So hopefully that, that makes sense. Yeah. I, in fact, I was thinking about the routines. I think that's one of the most important parts too, because up for even students who maybe are struggling a little bit, like they can find that routine just kind of puts them in a place where they can focus and it, it feels predictable. And so I think it just, it makes the lesson flow so much better. So I love that you added that part in. Another move I wanted to talk about was move five about um, sight words, because this was like one of the things that I remember doing flashcards um, for a long time. And so I think this is one that is a really important part of our teaching and it makes such a difference in helping students be more fluent. So I thought we could just talk about the difference between sight words according to research and then sight words according to what in the past a lot of educators have referred to sight words as. Yeah. So, you know, if you're like me, then originally what I thought was a sight word was a word that couldn't be sounded out. And I hear that a lot, but you just look at those, what we call sight words, like the fry list or the dolch list, and look how many of those words can actually be sounded out. They're completely decodable. You have in on there, got on there, me, he, we. Uh, so, and then a lot of others are really only have one part in them. You know, there could be more, but one irregular part, like you have said, well, the S and the D are very, very regular. It's the AI that's the irregular part. And so sometimes we treat these words, we treat them like we have to memorize them visually as a whole, but we don't. It's so much better to map the letters we see with the sounds that we hear. And the term sight word has a very different meaning for uh, to researchers where any word that can be retrieved from memory instantly 
is a sight word. Um, and the reason it's retrieved instantly is because of something called orthographic mapping, where it's been orthographically mapped, which basically just means that the letters, the spellings have been linked to the sounds they hear and the meaning of the word. And so really we want to help facilitate that process because this is how we store words um, in our brain, not visually. We, we shouldn't treat them as visual units that have to be memorized as a whole. Right. And so that's kind of what this chapter is about. And I kind of I'll share a process that I use to help really to help students really link that spelling with the sound and focus on the irregular part, because that's the part that they have to memorize, not the whole word as a whole. Yeah, I I you have so many great strategies in here and there were several that I had never heard of before. And so and I love the little short videos that you have in there, too, because it just makes it it's so much easier I know when um, when I work with teachers, a lot of times they want to see something and that just helps them to really kind of learn it. And so I love how you've added that in. Yeah. Uh, the last move I wanted to touch on was um, move six with meaning a focus on meaningful fluency practice, because I think you share some really great strategies in there. So I, I'm curious what you've noticed as far as since you started doing more fluency practice like that, how has that impacted what you see your students doing as far as being able to read and, and feeling more confident and just improving their reading. Oh, I mean, a huge difference too, not only in their ability to understand, but even just in their, like, I can see that with their stamina for reading longer passages. It's like no problem because they've practiced uh, so much. And it's fun to see that throughout the year, especially because now I'm teaching first grade and you know, I had someone come into my classroom about the spring last year, of first grade, and they were just like, I thought this, I thought this was a second grade class <laughs> because their reading was so great. And now we're back to the beginning of the year and it's like that struggle and we're all sounding out CVC words. And I'm just thinking like, oh, it's going to be so exciting again. Like just think towards spring. It's going to be amazing. But yeah, I think sometimes we think that fluency is just going to develop on its own. But a, a student that has a fluency problem, if they're just silent reading, that problem doesn't go away. It just becomes inaudible, right? So we need lots of opportunities for them to practice aloud with the opportunity to, for feedback. And that's really what I try to do in my classroom is maximize the time they have to practice these things. We were talking about phonics before. We can't teach phonics in isolation, right? They need lots of time in text to practice and apply those things that you're teaching in other parts of your day. Yeah. And well, and you, you know, with the routines too, that just makes everything run so much more smoothly too. So I love how you added some of those in. Yeah. Um, one thing I was thinking about, and and this has actually been for me as I have just really dove in and, and tried to get more information it's really hard to keep up with everything. And so I was just curious, you know, because now I get emails every day about webinars and I have so many books stacked up um, and more coming in my Amazon order. And so I'm just curious, like, what are the ways that you keep up on research and maybe some recommendations you have for someone who's just getting started or, um, you know, just kind of sort of dabbling in trying to figure out what, what structured literacy is. And then also for those who are a little bit further on, are there any sources that you would recommend? 
Yeah. Okay. Well, you should know I'm just a huge literacy nerd. So, <laughs> so I definitely like, I'm always learning because I love, I love listening to good podcasts. I love listening to webinars. I go to literacy conferences. <laughs> I follow certain people on social media. And so all these things, which I know, you know, not everyone does and that's okay. I'm just a little overzealous about it. Um, and if you're a uh, new to it, um, there's a website called Reading Rockets, which is great. That has a lot of information on it. And the same kind of parent company that does Reading Rockets just started a new website called Reading Universe that also has a lot of good quality materials. Reading Universe is just barely coming out. It's kind of their beta website. And it's a little more focused on the how and applying these things. So those are great. Um, if you want to go right into the research and maybe you're not new to it anymore, there's a lot of researchers that are active on Twitter, which sounds funny, but you can, you know, if you follow, if you see me on there, you can follow me and see some of the people I respond to it's, or that I follow. That's actually a really fun place to connect with people. You can, you know, they'll tweet out a new research study that just came out and there'll be talk about it. And so it's kind of fun to follow those conversations. Um, the Reading League has a great journal that comes out, I think, three times a year, which um, is another thing I like to stay ca caught up on. And that's an excellent resource, too. Um, so and I have a podcast. If you want to listen, I'm the co-host of the Literacy Talks podcast. And so we share um, a lot of things there, too. Yeah, I actually, I was going to ask you about that because I, I like your podcast because it has your perspective and then there's someone with a special ed background and then someone who is also um, a university professor, correct? Yeah, mm -hmm. that's right. So I think, you know, having those three people from very different places talking about the same issue is just really interesting to me. So I've I'm a huge literacy nerd too. So don't, <laughs> don't be ashamed. <laughs> There's quite a big group of us. I'm sure of it. <laughs> yeah. Is there anything that you um, are, that's coming up for you that you wanted to share about or. Oh, you know, we're entering conference season. So I'm so excited to go to some conferences <laughs> and um, in right now, you know, I'm, I'm like teaching and I'm doing a lot of speaking things about the book. So I guess that's. Um, the main thing, nothing huge and new right now, but yeah. Hey, well, I'm, I wish we would have gotten more time that we would have been able to go into all the moves, but I guess that's even more of a reason for everyone to go out and buy your book because, um, <laughs> I just, I think it's such a great resource. Mm -hmm. So thank you for talking taking the time to talk to us today, Lindsay. It was really great to learn more about you and your experiences and I hope that our listeners are able to join the book study, um, which starts on November 13th. And um, if if you're not able to do that, I think you should definitely go out and buy Lindsay Kemeny's book, Seven Mighty Moves. And it can be found at a lot of different places. I know Scholastic and Amazon and Target. Um, there's a lot of different ways that you can find it. So thank you very much for taking the time today. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. Thank you to Chris and Lindsay for the great conversation around literacy. Today's episode makes me think how there's still so much to learn about how we learn how to read. It comes extremely easy to some, while others need a bit more guidance. 
I think as we move forward to teaching literacy in Wisconsin and throughout this country, it comes back to using research-based practices and teaching kids how to react and decode new words and phrases rather than memorization. And being able to read is something that plenty of us take for granted, right? While the ways our teachers taught in schools may have worked for us, it's always about making sure that everyone gets a chance to learn and grow. A lot of our podcast episodes focus on how teaching practices are transforming to meet the needs of all learners in all sorts of disciplines. And I think the ways that we're rethinking literacy that we've heard about today can go a long way towards other educators applying these structured literacy practices in their classrooms. If you're listening to this episode when it first airs, check out our book study series starting this November, which will be covering the book by Lindsay, Seven Mighty Moves. Check the podcast description for a link to register and a list of ways to interact with other content from her. Thank you for listening to this episode of Building Educator Capacity. To be the first to know when our next episode lands, subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Special thanks to Ms. Liz Elliott, band director at Evansville Community School District, for providing the music for this podcast. We'll see you next time. Thanks, everyone.